Hello and welcome to Under Common Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. This week's lesson? No plan ever survives the first roll of initiative. I'm Ian Woodworth, I'm joined by my co-host James Daly, and today we are recapping our Monster Madness 2022 tournament. Today is March 30th. Tomorrow, March 31st, is going to be the final bout of our Monster Madness 2022 tournament. It will be live at 9 p.m. Eastern on our Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash undercommontaste. And by this point, you will be able to watch the final video. If you're listening to this before noon and you want to be surprised, just stop now, wait an hour, watch the (laughs) video, and then come back and listen to the episode. So our final match tomorrow evening on our Twitch channel is going to be between number one, Aspect of Bahamut. Surprise, surprise. And our true Cinderella story, number 23, Crystal Great Worm. Zero sarcasm. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, there's a little part of me that is glad that it is the Crystal Great Worm of all of the gem dragons. Because... Of all of the gem dragons, the Crystal Great Worm is the least photogenic. It really is. I mean, it's kind of plain. Because the sapphire is really nice, the emerald is really nice, the topaz. They're all these nice, slim, sleek, photogenic. Precious gemmed base and then just, yeah, rock crystal. And then then our Crystal Great Worm is heckin' chonk. Yeah, I do like that. I do like that about about the Crystal Great Worm. I mean, yeah, they definitely it's got some thickness. <laughs> yeah, that's thick with three C's. <laughs> it's like a bowl of oatmeal. Mm. <laughs> now I want oatmeal. You keep making me hungry during these podcasts. I blame you. Ah, uh, well, no, this actually like I really really enjoyed doing this tournament. This was actually I think a fairly good idea. I liked being able to roll out these monsters that. I personally never really got to put on a table or got to really encounter on a table much. So this was actually a lot of fun to do. Yeah, it really was. And because you never really see these creatures, you know, in one-on-one fights, it's always, you know, them versus a party or them with minions versus a party. You never really see them one-on-one. And so you don't really get a feel for how they actually flow until you actually throw them up on a table one-on-one and just, have them smack the crap out of one another. Oh my God, we've done some learning. Holy crap. <laughs> learning has happened. Yes. And again, I think even if you're a DM or a player either way and you have a free moment and you're just kind of like, eh, putts around, this is a really good exercise to do is pick two monsters or pick, make, just roll up a character and throw it up against a monster and just see how the dice play back and forth because things that you think would be super critical maybe like a super amazing armor class and things that you think would be a little less important, like your health pool or something like that. Sometimes those can be drastically different. And even depending on the type of monster that you face, I mean, sometimes, I mean, we had some creatures that went up against other creatures that did, you know, wonderfully, and then up against a different type of creature and they just fell apart right there. And it's like, wow, what the hell happened? You know, we thought this was a lock. Yeah. So Case in point, number one, I think the most substantial example of that was Demogorgon. Yeah. Demogorgon, the 26 seed, went up against Sul Katesh, the number seven seed, and 
because Sol Katesh didn't have a huge wisdom save. Just got waffle stomp. Demogorgon, yeah, Demogorgon was able to stun locker because he was able to use his action for his beguiling gaze, which if you fail your wisdom saving throw, you're stunned until the end of Demogorgon's next turn. And then as a legendary action, uses tail attack, which because we were using average damage, was 53 points of damage every single time it hit. And because Sulkatesh was stunned, that was with advantage. So, yeah, Sulkatesh just got wrecked. Yeah, it was Sulkatesh and Sol. Who was the other Sol from ever? Uh, Rectalkesh. Rectalkesh, yeah. So Sulkatesh. That's, Rectal- who, that's who the Crystal Great Worm beat in the first round. Right. And again, this was also something to see. Both of these were from Eberron. So a different set of books still technically D&D still fifth edition not books used too often and these monsters looked terrifying and against a party they would be terrifying one-on-one they kind of suck yeah they were not meant for solo play yeah they were not meant for a one-on-one battle they were meant for large crowd controls and disabling whole groups of like two or three players at once and then kind of focusing damage. And so if you could get something that had enough size or hit points to really go toe to toe with it, they just crumbled. They were really glass cannons. Yeah. Especially Sul Katesh with, I forget the name of the ability where she could make the orbs crash and create anti-magic zones. Yeah. I mean, against a party that would wreck a party, but absolutely because you could scatter them out just enough to where they barely overlapped and you would have this huge area and specifically, her magic was not affected by that anti-magic field. Right. So she could stand in the middle of it. And have this nice bubble, yeah. Yes. And it was really substantial, very potent ability. But all of Demogorgon's abilities, their gaze abilities were innate abilities. They weren't spells. So they right. weren't affected by an anti-magic field. Yeah, so I mean, even if you had a decent, like, two or three really strong barbarians, they would have just been able to walk up and smack her around. Where, again, by the time you have a party heavy enough, high enough level to face Sulkatesh generally, you're going to be relying on your magic and magical abilities pretty heavily at that point. Which is probably how they are written and designed. Yeah, and another thing, anti-magic field suppresses magic weapons. Right, exactly. And magic armor. So, yeah, it would be... And I can't remember if it was actually a proper anti-magic field or if it just prevented the casting of spells. If it just prevented the casting of spells, that would be a different animal and less overpowered. Right. But as it was, it was a very potent ability in the correct circumstance. Fighting Demogorgon was not that specific circumstance. No, no, it was not. And again, that is something to consider. Now, again, we tried to keep things rules as written as close as we could. We did make... Some minor changes, again, with legendary actions, we made them a roll to see if they would recharge versus just so many legendary action points per full round. The other thing, just because with the dragons and so many other things, we considered all of their basic physical attacks to be considered magical. A lot of them were. And some of our earlier monsters, like our Krakens and things like that, because we weren't sure exactly if they were considered or not. And if they weren't, then there was literally no physical way they could have done any damage to anything just specifically uh the brass great worm versus tromocratus yeah because tromocratus is immune to non-magical bludgeoning piercing slashing and fire which is all of the brass dragons damage types right and because at that point we had basically gone through a third of the 
first round fights before we realized, oh crap, a dragon's natural weapons aren't considered magical, but we've been playing this whole tournament so far treating them as magical, it would have been disingenuous to the rest of the fights we had already done to just suddenly change it. So we decided to keep it throughout. Which even goes to prove, even us who, I mean, we've been doing this podcast for a while, we've delved through lore, we do all of this, we get surprised by the rules in the book sometimes too. I mean, yes, the books can be dense, there's a lot to go through, and sometimes you just gloss over that little bit that you just, yeah, okay, it's a dragon, it's breathing magical fire. Okay, yeah, sure, of course it's, ma- no, that's that's actual physical fire. Okay then, there you go. Yeah, that's <laughs> That was what prompted that discovery is, I went to look up and see if a dragon's breath weapon was considered a magical effect for, I can't remember which fight it was, but it was one of the creatures that had magic resistance. So it would have had advantage on saving throws versus spells and other magical effects. And so if the breath weapon had been a magical effect, he would have gotten advantage on his saving throw against the dragon's breath weapons. And so that's what prompted me to look it up because it was the first fight that we'd had where we had one of the combatants with magic resistance. And so I wanted to look that up and see that may have been the Warforged Colossus fight. Was it the Warforged Colossus or was it not Mordok? Who was the, um, oh, hold on real quick. It's not like I don't have a giant list of battles we fought. It wasn't Velomachius. I'm thinking who was the big, it wasn't Orcus. I need, I need some. The guy that initially has Zeriel's maul. Oh, uh, Kostichi. Kostichi. Yeah, I think it was Kostichi. Possibly. Yeah. I'm not going to. Actually, I have that here. Because I mean, it's Kostichi and the Bronze Great Worm. That's our first round. Yes, he does have magic resistance. So yes, yeah. that would be the fight. Yeah, so it was Kostichi that we were looking up. And again, I thought that fight was going to go very different. I mean, I knew Kostichi was going to be disadvantaged because, again, a smaller health pool. But I figured, you know, big smashy stick, kind of rage, kind of do the whole barbarian thing and run up. And hey, I've got magic resistance. So what? Because, of course, dragon fire. Got to be magical. Nope. <laughs> he dropped pretty quick. He did drop pretty quick. Yeah, the Bronze Great Worm used him as his personal chew toy. Yeah, and that brings up another thing that we found. And again, it's kind of rolling the monsters as monsters and things like that. But Dragon Tactics, kind of, we learned a bit rolling these out. And I mean, unless you were larger than huge, if you were huge or smaller, you got pinned, you got restrained, and then the rest of your life was at disadvantage. Yeah, unless you wanted to take your action to try and break out and then risk an attack of opportunity to run away to get out of range only then to be caught and attacked and grappled and restrained again the next turn anyway right because with all of these great worms their claw attacks automatically grapple you if you're huge or smaller on a hit right and they're all plus 18 plus 19 to hit so more likely than not they're going to hit yeah and so This gave a really kind of a cat and mouse feel. If you've ever seen a a cat toy with a mouse, particularly if it's like a younger or adolescent cat and it's learning to hunt, which really would fit with that whole mindset, particularly for a chromatic dragon, is it would tease its prey by and large, particularly something like a black or maybe a green. You know, they're going to sit there, they're going to pin you. Oh, look, you got away. Oh, no, next attack, I got you pinned again. That would totally be the feel of these creatures. Yeah, definitely with the chromatics. Yeah. Things that I wasn't used to with the chromatics, the arcane barbs, the the arcane Arcane spears, yeah. Arcane spears. They were kind of cool. Nice to have, not near as important as I thought they were going to be. They dished out some early damage when you could keep things at range, but once that range closed and you got close, it got dirty fast. But it was nice to have a guaranteed 
48 points of damage as a legendary yes. action. Yes, that was nice. And there were, I mean, in the fights where we had the chromatics against the gem dragon, that would be the blue versus the sapphire. That may have been the only one. Uh, and the green versus the topaz. Yeah. In both of those fights, because it has a 120 foot range, they were able to set themselves up at a distance where their opponent couldn't reach them in one whole round and then peg them with these lances at range and then move in because I, they did have that advantage of being a more substantial a bit further out ranged option. I will say it was a more substantial ranged option. And this is, again, one of those things as we play these dragons, because, again, we took the top 32 highest CR rated monsters. And so the game's called Dungeons and Dragons. Needless to say, the brackets were kind of dragon heavy. But as we learned to play these different types of dragons, we learned different tactics and even tactics among the different dragon types. And I think if we would have played these chromatic versus gym dragon battles a little later, they may have gone a little different because we did learn how to use these gym dragons a whole lot more effectively. That said, the gym dragons have just come out with Fizzbin, so they are fairly new on the deck for 5e. They were way back in second edition, and I think possibly first edition. Uh, so, they were in third edition too. I don't recall them in third. They were in the Draconomicon. Okay, but they've not been on the table in a while, and they are definitely not some of the more well-known monster types. And so, again, learning did happen. We learned a lot, and I think with that knowledge now, I think these fights would have swung a different direction. I'm not certain that they would have. Okay. Because they have a lower AC than the chromatic dragons. They have a lower health pool than the chromatic dragons. And they have lower damage output. Yes. And combine all of that with the fact that they don't have a tail attack. Right. Which was... The bread and butter for... Talking about, <laughs> talking about dragon combat tactics. With the chromatics and the metallics both. Yes, absolutely. The, our go-to ended up being you open up with your breath weapon if it's going to be effective. Yeah. You try and deal as much damage as you can on your way into engage in melee. And then you just hit them as hard as you can. You use your legendary action to use a tail attack to try and knock them prone. So that way you can make your multi-attack on your turn with advantage. And then they make a tail attack from prone with disadvantage is their legendary action try and knock you down and if they succeed then they use half their movement to stand up and then they attack you <laughs> with advantage and right. it did end up becoming a little bit repetitive it did a little bit now again it also depends both the chromatics and the metallics had a wing attack which was a good way so again that was one of the legendary actions if it recharged again that could knock your opponent prone and it also gave you half your movement speed as a bonus so you could use that to get back up so that was the one thing if anything we really hoped would recharge almost even more or as much as the breath weapon depending because like your elemental breath weapon if they weren't immune did a huge amount of damage yeah i mean it's 78 damage for the chromatics 84 damage for the metallics that's if you fail to save it's half that if right. they make it but but still that's a huge chunk of damage right but if you think that multi-attack with advantage could very easily do more than that half breath weapon attack, especially if you're rolling with advantage and you land at a critical. Absolutely. Those numbers added up real fast. And so getting up as fast as you can and keeping your opponent down was the way to go with these. The other thing for fifth edition that was fairly new was the dragon's sapping breath, which 
against anything other than a dragon was super, super potent. But dragons had Yeah, because the sapping breath would knock them out at the end of their turn. They could roll a save. If they don't save, they're still out. If they get the save, they get it. If they do make the save, they have disadvantage on their next turn. I mean, yeah. so that kind of gave you that advantage swing. And if you could keep them asleep, then you could just pummel a sleeping foe. But most of the other dragons had a high enough will save at constitution. Plus. Constitution save, yeah, at a 12 yeah. plus. It, that, no, it was it was 17 or 18 on all of these dragons, plus 17, plus 18. And yeah. then you're and then the DC is a 25, 25. So you had to roll basically a 12 plus. Is, that's what I was thinking. So they basically had a 16. no, you had to roll like a seven or an eight. OK, or higher. Yeah. yeah, it was you had a you had like a you had like a 60, 60 or 65 percent chance, chance of making it. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so it really wasn't worth it, even if you got them asleep for one round that ended your round. And more often than not, I mean, I, I could sit there and break down the math. 60 times 60 would be uh, blah, blah, blah. I'm thinking you had less than a 33% chance that they'd be asleep for more than two rounds. And so it was almost wasting a breath weapon at that point because they just pop up at the end of the next round. And they're like, okay, now what? Yeah, we ran into that with the silver great worm. Yeah. Both against the gold great worm and against Aspect of Bahamut, they managed to land a sapping breath against both of them. But then their opponent saved at the end of their turn, and so they were no longer unconscious. And so the silver put them to sleep, cost them a turn, but they got nothing out of it. Right. And so, again, that's where we kind of slowly stumbled upon just that constant tail attack, because that was the best way to get an advantage. And like I said, when it came to dragon versus dragon, particularly if there was an elemental resistance to their breath weapon type, you think, hey, I'm playing a dragon, I'm going to breathe dragon breath on everything. And no, just... Just getting dirty. Getting dirty did it. <laughs> well, and because, let's face it, we had some lousy luck in getting our breath weapons to reach Yeah, we really did. <laughs> our our, our <laughs> dices were running hot and cold. Yeah, most of our fights with the dragons, if we got a total of three breath weapon attacks over the entire fight, that was pretty good. Yeah. And these were fights that ended up lasting 10, 11, 12 rounds because that's just how long it takes you to run through 533 or 565 <laughs> hit points. Yeah, these dragons weren't going down quick, quick. And so that was another thing I learned doing this is it kind of gave me a feel for how long to expect combat to run. So I'm as a DM, that's always that question is, you know, I have my players at the table and we all have lives, we all have schedules. So we want to try to wrap this up three, four hours, two hours, maybe. And so how much role play can I expect? How much combat can I expect? And this was a really good way. And I think all told, generally when we do a batch, we do a batch of like four at a time. And we could get four just straight, nothing but combats done. And it would take us about an hour and a half to two hours. So you can really look about 15 to 30 minutes is probably a good standard to expect. And that's with us knowing what our roles are going to be, what our abilities were going to be, having an idea what to do. Now, if you have newer players or new levels and they're looking to see what spell or ability is going to fit the situation, they're obviously going to be a little slower. As you go from player to player and turn to turn and they're each assessing the situation, that's going to take a little more time as well. So yeah, I really think 20 to 30 minutes is a fair amount to expect for any combat encounter if you're planning scheduling at the table. Yeah, all of our fights averaged out to about 20 minutes a piece yeah and like james said there was minimal role play to this it was almost exclusively talking fight mechanics 
the mechanical yeah. aspects because we didn't want to spend three hours running all of these fights every night. And we really could have. We um, could have. The closest consideration for roleplay we did go was after we rolled initiative, whoever had initiative, we would kind of pick a setting for our monsters to meet, whether they were on a battlefield or just in a plane of air. If nothing else to give us an example of or an idea of how far apart we were or if we had flying monsters or everybody was on the ground, you do need that at least a bit. Plus, it's fun. A little bit of atmosphere always goes a long way. And and what it did was it allowed whoever won initiative set the distance between combatants. Yes, which was very important. Which was very important because, you know, if you're fighting two great worms or if you're a great worm fighting something else and the great worm wins initiative, they can open up with their breath weapon at 300 feet. Right. And then you do 300 feet, your opponent's going to use their full fly movement to 120 feet. And if you're lucky enough and your breath weapon recharges on the next round, you get another breath weapon and you're still at a fairly safe range. You can blast that breath weapon and then back up again. And again, that's generally how these battles went. And then when they both lost or exhausted their ranged attacks, and again, that's when we got into the thick and dirty of things. Yeah. And one of the rules that we ended up implementing between our episode where we had the green and the topaz fight and the actual start of the tournament um, that we put in the written rules was that if a creature was able to attack their opponent, where they were in a position where they could attack their opponent and chose not to, their opponent would recover one hit die plus their con mod hit points as it's sort of an incentive to keep combat going right and we really did this because we were kind of worried that we'd get a dragon against old terry the Tarask, and they just kind of float above and just wait for that breath weapon to continuously recharge <laughs> yeah absolutely and that would have been a boring fight it would have been and it was largely it was because we wanted to level the playing field and allow the non-flying creatures an actual fighting chance to actually have a chance to win a fight right so that way their opponent would have to close with them and get in range at some point right but of course if the dice had been especially cruel and the dragon's breath weapon managed to recharge every single turn they could have stayed up there and just showered them with breath weapons over and over and over again until they did i would have personally driven over and wager die (laughs) (laughs) just saying i mean i think we had one battle where my d6 to recharge my was it my breath weapon or my spears it was my spears your arcane spears it was was rolling very hot i I was pretty sure you're going to knock on my door and die that evening (laughs) yeah it was it was a blue great worm versus sapphire great worm fight and those arcane spears are what made the difference because the blue only won by like 61 hit points yeah and you recharged five times in six rounds yeah it's just the one it time was I, I was hot. yeah it was crazy and i mean and that that was the fun thing too is i mean even as evenly balanced or as mismatched as these fights were a lot of it did still come down to dice there was times where oh it was bahamut versus who was the second bahamut fight the green great worm yeah bahamut versus the green and the green great worm was taking it to bahamut was giving him just a good old-fashioned pummeling because bahamut has no poison resistance of all the things you'd think no poison resistance and he was just taking a beating and then he rolls three criticals yeah three criticals and four attacks yeah and and that was just good night green yeah and two of them were on his bite right which which... using average damage a critical hit bite from aspect of bahamut is 80 points of damage right so that leveled the playing field real quick real real quick so 
taking these things, like I said, we had a lot of fun doing these. How would you take what you learned from this battle and going through and listening to these and kind of weighing everything out if you were going to homebrew something for a party to maybe have a dragon encounter later on to face their very own great worm? What would you give them? How would you prepare them? Ah, uh, well, I would personally start off by having them find stuff that gives resistance or immunity to their breath weapon. Yes. That would be the first and most substantial thing because, especially for a party, that big, like 16d12, 300 foot cone is just huge. It is massive. And especially for the metallics with that sapping breath. A yeah. DC 25 con save is hard to get. That is really hard to get. Yeah. I mean, that is assuming for a 20th level party, assuming that they have 20 con and they're proficient in constitution saving throws, that's a plus 11. So yeah. they have to roll a 14 or higher to save on that. Right. Or otherwise, it's bedtime. Right. And yeah, absolutely. And you end up, you automatically lose a turn. At the end of that, you have to roll to save. And if you fail that, you automatically lose another turn because it's, you become unconscious. It's not that you fall asleep. It's not that somebody can go over and spend an action to shake you awake like they can if they put you to sleep. No, you are out. You are comatose. <laughs> exactly. And so as a DM doing this, this is a really good time to dig into some old books, pull up some old dragon lore, and kind of slowly toss hints and breadcrumbs about what type of dragon maybe the party's going to face if you have that planned out. So they can kind of research and maybe start building up that arsenal to expect the red, the blue, the green, the brass, the gold, whatever it's going to be, you know, have that expectation. And like I said, those breadcrumbs can be a really good way to build up your story and kind of hint something's coming. You might want to start getting ready for this. Right. Absolutely. Another thing that really played heavily, especially when we're talking about the crystal great worm and the incredible success that that great worm has had in this tournament so far it has been mobility. Oh, mobility has been, I mean, I am singing the mobility song. I used to be, it's all about, you know, DPS and armor class. And now I'm thinking, you know what, if I could get like a plus one or plus two to armor class, or I could get something that gives me like a teleport ability, I'm probably grabbing that teleport. Yeah. Because both the crystal great worm and Archduke Zeriel. Yeah. That, I mean, that came both of them, both through. of them had teleport abilities. Zeriel's was a legendary action. She could teleport 120 feet or she could just teleport as an action. Right. Whereas the Crystal Great Worm, like all of the Gem Dragon Great Worms, has a bonus action 60 foot teleport. Yeah. And that 60 foot teleport actually proved to be far more potent than that 120 foot teleport that Zeriel had. Yeah, because with that 60 foot bonus action teleport, even if the Crystal Great Worm was grappled and restrained, they'd bamf out, they'd no longer be prone, they'd no longer be at disadvantage, and they'd be at range. And they were far enough that whatever dragon or other creature generally couldn't use their legendary action. So that took away a free attack and took away all disadvantage. And those disadvantage rolls, I mean, they cost a surprisingly large number of criticals that, hey, I got a natural 20 and a three. Hey, I got a natural 20 and a 10. Okay, well, fine. I don't get that critical, but I can hit. Oh, I got a critical. Oh, that's a miss. I mean, that disadvantage coming through because one side or the other, as often as not, was on disadvantage on one side or the other. And it was, again, those criticals popped up 
you just couldn't use them. Yeah, and quite often one was at disadvantage and the other one was at advantage because they were restraining the other. Exactly. I mean, that's how the Tarasque was able to advance as far as they did was because once they managed to land that bite, there is no size restriction on what the Tarasque can restrain. Yeah, Terry was kind of frightening. I always knew that everyone was afraid of the Trask, but playing that Trask, dear God. And (laughs) and to think, we may end up actually doing an episode on this a little bit later. The Tarask as presented in 5th edition Monster Manual is neutered compared to the 3rd edition Tarask. Yeah, definitely got the nerf bat. (laughs) Because the 3rd edition Tarask had a 40 HP regen every turn. Yeah, that's just, that's ungodly. (laughs) And so you had to drop him to zero and then wish him out of existence in order to actually kill it. Right. Because otherwise he'd regen and pop back up and then go eat the halfling village. Absolutely. And that was, I mean, yes, the Tarasque by far had the largest health pool in the tournament with 676 hit points. Which is just staggering. It was like, oh my. (laughs) He had almost 100 hit points more than the next one, which I think was Aspect of Bahamut at 585. Yeah. But on top of that, a 25 AC, magic resistance. Spell reflect. Spell reflect. Yeah, so if it was a spell that you had to make an attack roll for, if it was a line effect, or if it was magic missiles, you roll a d6. On a 1 to 5, nothing happens. On a 6, it gets bounced back at the caster. Right, which is, oh my god. And then, aside from all of that, it had the bite and the chomp, so now you're grappled. And then it had a 5-turn multi-attack. It was just like, I'm going to hit you with everything. And if it hit with everything, no crits, it was 148 damage around. Yeah. Which we don't really have to tell you that can take out almost everything in this tournament in like four turns. Right. That said, just pure damage output and throwing dice on the table, the Marut. Oh, the Marut punched so much higher above its weight class. Yeah, we're sitting there like, you know, Ian and I, we both love the Inevitables. They kind of make our lawful neutral hearts kind of titter a little bit. A little bit. (laughs) As much of the lawful neutrals I have, I generally roll more chaotic, but I got a soft spot for the inevitables. They're just, they are inevitable. But yeah, this thing would walk up, guaranteed to hit, just no roll, walk up and say, smack. It was tearing through. And unfortunately, I misplayed the Maru on its last battle. I rolled the Blazing Edict, not realizing that my opponent had resistance to stun. Immunity to stun, yeah. And if not for that, the Marut would have moved on. And I will say I was a little heartbroken to, to have cost him that advancement. I'm still, I'm sorry. I'm sure he's going to show up on my doorstep one day after he gets rebuilt by the Modrons. <laughs> but, but yeah, that Marut was definitely... Yeah, so yeah. so the fight that really showcased the Marut really well was the first fight against the Copper Great Worm. And so the Copper Great Worm comes in and uses its breath weapon to use sapping breath. And the Marut fails its saving throw, but the Marut is immune to being unconscious. So it actually didn't matter, but the Marut only has like a 30-foot fly speed. Yeah, it's nice. <laughs> so, and so he flies his 30 feet up into the air towards this dragon that's up above him. I think he stopped at like 80 feet away or something like that. And he readied an action. And so the dragon comes and goes to charge in to multi-attack him. When he hits 30 feet, it triggers the prepared blazing edict. Copper Great Worm fails its saving throw against the stun. So it it gets stunned. It falls 60 feet to the ground. So it takes fall damage. Yeah. <laughs> and then the Marut 
and, and it takes upset. and it takes the 45 radiant damage from the blazing edict so the marut on its turn just takes its happy little 30 feet of fly speed straight down onto the dragon and punches it twice for a total of 124 damage right and that's what it was getting 124 damage guaranteed every turn and that was just, I think the Maru had about 100 hit points less than the Great Worm. That much damage output guaranteed. There was no rolling, no missed attacks. It was just, here's your 120 hit points gone. Here's your 120 especially, hit points gone. Especially since the Edict recharged and the Great Worm got stunned again. Right. And then you tried to fly away from me and I got an attack of opportunity. Yeah. Which dealt another 60 points. Yeah. And then your breath weapon didn't recharge and you had to close again anyway. Yeah, that sucked. That really, really sucked. But I was trying to see if I could figure a way kind of around and plan and kind of reestablish a distance. And I just couldn't. So yeah, those inevitables were really fun to play with. The Tarrasque was great fun to play with. Some of the Krakens early on were kind of interesting and kind of fun. I would like to revisit them. I mean... Definitely had some stuff to visit. I don't think I'd put him up against a dragon again, per se. But yeah, if you're running like a coastal campaign or maybe a pirate shanty campaign, definitely some fun things to throw up because they were kind of creepy themselves. They definitely brought their own things to the table. Oh, yeah. Tromocratus was beast. He just unfortunately did not have the damage output necessary to keep up with the Brass Great Worm. Right. And it's really unfortunate because he really had that potential to pull it off. Unfortunately, he got hit by a sapping breath like he either got hit two or three times and ended up losing a total of, I think, five rounds. Yeah, he didn't have the constitution save to save that. Yeah, it was unfortunate. But yeah, that was one that could have gone very differently. Yes. Especially if it had been, say, against the red dragon that didn't have that sapping breath instead of the brass dragon that did right yeah that definitely would have made a huge difference the other creature i definitely want to mention was the one of our very own we had our trackus the shell spider pop up and i think this was a good trial by fire for it it kind of gave us an idea of how close we came as we measured out the cr and i think for the cr we gave it it made it to the third round which i mean is about where it should have met it. It met Terry the Tarrasque, and surprise, surprise, it didn't get further than Tarrasque, but it would have been a huge shock if it had. So I think it balanced well. If anything, I still think the Virulent Poison ability might be a little strong, but... I agree. I think that it needs a defined duration. Yes. That's the first thing, because as written now, you have to actually cure it to get rid of it and if you don't have a way to cure the poison it just lingers i think rolling a d4 or a d6 for duration would be the way to do that so 1d4 turns or 1d6 turns depending 1d6 turns is still a lot of turns and even if you save or even if you're resistant to poison taking nine points of damage automatically at the start of your turn starts to add up really really fast and so even a d6 nine times six we're looking at 54 hit points off of i mean to save against you couldn't save against it as as soon as you got hit by the bile you were at least taking you know the nine points of damage so i think a 1d4 for turns would Uh, potentially honestly i would say have it last a minute and give you a con save at the end of each of your turns i could see that yeah that's how i would do it okay Um, so that it's max duration is 10 rounds if you save it goes away 
but you take the damage at the beginning of your turn. So you are, you're automatically going to take at least one tick of damage if you get hit. I like that. That seems like a good balance. But otherwise, I think we wound up balancing Tarrakis out fairly well. It was really fun to play. You know, walking up, getting that stomp damage, you're getting those three attacks, multi-attacks. You had that extra thunder damage on top. So there was some saves in there. It was a lot of fun to play with. And like I said, I think for a CR, was it 27? 27 or 28. I think it was yeah. CR 28. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a scary monster. It was beefy. This definitely would absolutely wreck a melee-based party just because every time it stomped within 10 feet, a 10-foot radius, everything had to make a save against thunder damage. So, I mean, again, this was definitely a fun monster. Personally, I would alter that one to have the attack portion deal more damage and the thunder portion deal less. Okay. Because it ended up, I think it is a 4d8 thunder damage. Yeah. It comes up to 18 points on average. Right. And personally, I would tune that down. Would you do 3d8 or 2d8? A 2d8. And then I would add another die to the actual stomp damage. Stomp. Um, yeah, I think that would work out really well. And so, again, that was really good. I liked that we got to test our creation a bit and... Like I said, it it was really fun to play. So, And another thing, I would absolutely give it more hit points. Yeah, it did need more hit points. It, it was a bit it, squishy. Yeah, it only had 440 hit points. It greatly undersold itself in that particular case. Had I gone ahead and given it, say, the 20-60-20 hit dice that some of the dragons had, you know, give it up into the low 500s, it would have substantially beefed it up. Yeah, and again, as we built Tarrakis, Tarrakis was supposed to be basically a demigod. So again, it's up there, a CR-27, CR-28. It's not something you're going to come across every day. This thing was going to be an in-campaign BBEG for us. And one other thing that I would add to it is give it the ability to cast Earthbind so that it can pull flying monsters out of the sky so it can fight it on the ground. Yeah. It definitely because it is an earth elemental. It's going to want to be able to do that. So that would have fit thematically. I thought about that after we got ready to start the tournament, and I felt that it would be disingenuous to make that change before the tournament started. Gotcha. And that was a fair call for you, and I thank you for that. But yeah, no, as we update our creatures and kind of go through, which again, the creatures that we do solo write, you can find on our Patreon. A lot of them are free. We do have some that are Patreon exclusive, but all of these write-ups we do put out. So if you ever kind of want to check these things out, please hop on and they're there for you to play with because we do want to see these out on tables. Absolutely. But yeah, no, I think that would be a good addition to fix that and give it a bit more. Again, it would feel better thematically. I agree. And the final touch that I would change with Tarrakis, especially going through all of the other gargantuan monsters that we use that had bite attacks that could grapple, is that Tarrakis's bite attack requires a check to see if it grapples. Yeah, I would absolutely say if you're huge or smaller, it automatically grapples you and you're restrained. I would do that. I'd almost give it a web attack because a lot of your web attacks, you know, basically give the constrained addition too. And even well, the web attack itself could probably act as your earth bind as well. Well, it has the web spell as an at will. OK, but then you're, you're the, using the problem is the problem is the way that it functions. You can't really cast it and up then in the air. Yeah. You've only got a 60 foot reach on it. 
Right. And if you cast it up into the air on your next turn, it falls to the ground and dissipates. Right. It has to have points to attach to in order to function. That's why I, I was wanting Earthbind, because it's a saving throw for that creature. And if they fail their saving throw, their fly speed becomes zero when they get pulled to the ground. Right. And then going for your grapple and astray. No, that does fit. Because as we said, just about everything else, if it hit you, you're stuck. And with Trakish, you did have a good chance to escape. Yeah. yeah, that would be a fair change as well. Anyway, I really enjoyed doing this tournament. I thought it came out really, really fun. We're definitely going to have to sit around and brainstorm because we definitely want to do another tournament next year, but not rehash the same monsters. So we're going to spend some time pondering. We thought maybe kind of hitting the other end of the rainbow, as it were, and check out some of our lower end monsters. Could be good fun. Maybe picking monsters from a select area or realm. If you have any ideas, we'd love to hear from you. You can message us on uh, Under Common Taste, either our Twitter or our email. We always love to hear from you. Kind of see what you think our next tournament bracket should be, because now's the time to start planning. Yeah. (laughs) The idea that I had, because it's going to be 2023, is look at the CR2 or CR3 monsters and do teams where it's either two cr3s or three cr2s whichever happens to be the one that we go with and so that way you're able to get a little bit of the party dynamic yeah the tactical element that you can add into it and where they're lower cr monsters it'll still go pretty quick I think that could be really fun. And depending on the pool, what could be a lot of fun is maybe if we get some other guests come in or maybe eventually some listeners and maybe do like a CR 2-3 monster party draft. That could be fun. That could be a lot of fun. And let them pick their two or three monsters and we could sit there as impartial judges and just throw them into our own little Pokemon arena. (laughs) Let's say you put all of the CR 1, 2, and 3 monsters into this pool and say you have CR 10 spending limit. Yes, you you have build a build your team power cap. I love it. This we might be able to do this before March Madness. I don't know because this is definitely something that could be repeatable. We definitely need to ponder this because that could be a lot of fun. Yeah, because then you could have like three CR threes and a CR one. You could have two CR threes, two CR twos. You could have five CR twos. You could have ten CR ones. Yeah, and if you can find those monsters that synergize really well with each other, you could end up with a fairly substantial team. You could end up with a team of 10 CR1s that makes it to the finals. What about five Will-O-Wisps? <laughs> oh God, I haven't even thought of what what the... Uh, what's the challenge rating of a Will-O-Wisp? I believe it's a two. It might be. Let me... So yeah, five Will-O-Wisps would be interesting. Um, I happen to have my monster manual here next to me. It is a CR2. So, yeah. <laughs> Sweet Jesus. Yeah. As, as we know, that mobility lets you hit way above your weight class. Yeah. And that incorporeal movement so it can go through things. You know, it regains hit points if it deals. You I've know, got it my can use its consume <laughs> life. And yeah, it's that would be rough. That would be a rough one. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think that wraps me up for today. Like I said, I'm definitely looking forward to our next big tournament, our next event, whether it's next March Madness or if we form something before. I learned so much doing this. I can't explain how much I learned doing this. It was amazing. I suggest people kind of do this on their own. As I said at the beginning of the podcast, it was a lot of fun. Go through, if you had a chance, we put a lot of our little shorts on TikTok or YouTube so you can kind of hear and follow along if you haven't. It was, again, a lot of fun, very educational very imaginative. I just can't say enough how much fun it was. I have to agree. It was so 
educational yes to go through and see how these monsters run and what sort of chains they can set up to improve their own chances within their own skill set without having to rely on any other creature to help them and some of these are restricting rules that we set up really hampered like orcus orcus would have done so much better if he could have summoned some undead yes bell 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 could have hit Aspen and Tiamat with an imprisonment and had a really good chance of just banishing her from the tournament and just going on. Yeah, first turn and done. I mean, could have easily happened. But again, we wanted to keep these interesting. And honestly, I mean, even throughout the weeks, we've had some tiring days. We've had, you know, just end of the day, you're kind of tired. It was a lot of fun just sitting there and rolling dice against a friend and like, really, you got another fucking critical? Are you serious? (laughs) It was a lot of fun. Yeah, there was definitely some profanity bouncing back and forth, (laughs) but it was all good fun. Oh, yeah. And I definitely look forward to doing something like this again. Yes. But yeah, I think that's going to do it for today. Again, we are going to be having the finals tomorrow night, 9 p.m. Eastern time on our Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash undercommontaste. We are going to be having number one, Aspect of Bahamut versus number 23, Crystal Great Worm. Cinderella definitely has a strong chance to win it all in this tournament. So this is going to be an interesting fight. I'm very much looking forward to it. Absolutely, yes. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, please send us an email under commentaste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Just search Under Common Taste. We are on Patreon, patreon.com slash Taste. That's where all of our write-ups that James was mentioning happen to be. If you want to support the show financially and get access to some of our patron-exclusive content, please consider becoming a patron. We are also on Discord, and you can find a link to our Discord channel in our show notes. Yeah, if this is your first time finding us, we're so happy you found us. We do more than just tournament stuff. We do lore deep dives. We do homebrew contents, world building. Again, so we do a lot of different things, but we try to help players build their own world so they can bring them to their tables and players. You can find our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Google, iHeartRadio. Again, just search under common taste. As always, please give us a rate and review. This helps increase our visibility and lets us know what you want to hear more of. Thank you so much for listening. Join us next week. We are going to be doing our crossover episode with Mike Daniel from 19 Hits the Dragon. We're doing part one on our podcast next Wednesday, and part two is going to be on his podcast on Saturday, so be sure to go and check that out. We are going to be talking about multiclassing, which is something that we've wanted to tackle for a while now, and we've finally gotten a chance to sit down with Mike and talk a bit about multiclassing and the mechanics of how it works and some of the cool things that you can do with it. So thank you for listening. Stay safe. We'll see you next week with Mike from 19 Hits the Dragon. Happy gaming. Thank you for listening to another episode of Undercommon Taste. You can find links to all of our social media accounts, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch, as well as our Patreon and Discord channel in the show notes. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find more of her work at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycrowell. Our logo was illustrated by David Sutherland. You can find him on Instagram at willx underscore 73 or on DeviantArt at deviantart.com slash David Sutherland. 
Thanks again for listening. Stay safe. We'll see you again next week.